Turn to Ruth chapter 3. Last week we saw the providential guidance of God in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. It just so happened that Ruth uh, was in the field of Boaz, but Boaz just happened to come by. Now, of course, we know that things don't just happen, right? That the Lord is behind all these things. The Lord is working in the lives of people. We saw that Ruth was rewarded by the generosity of Boaz in that chapter as well. In fact, he used his generosity to bless, bless both Ruth and Naomi. Tonight, we're going to look at three scenes from the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz as the Lord is still working to bring a couple together for his purposes. He's still working to bring a couple together for his purposes. It's unlike anything else, quite honestly, recorded in the scripture. We're going to look at three scenes tonight. Scene one is Naomi and Ruth. That's found in chapter two of Ruth. I said three. Actually, we're starting back in chapter two. Chapter two, verse 17 through chapter three, verse five. In this scene, Naomi plays two roles. First of all, as an encourager and then as a matchmaker. First of all, there's Naomi, the encourager, found in chapter 2, verses 17 and 23. Let's read those verses. Verse 17 says, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had had left over uh, after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabite has said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with all his maids, so that others may not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, according to verse 17 of chapter 2, Ruth had an extremely productive day of work. It was a full day. She worked all the way until evening, except for that maybe a possible short break. As I said last week, Ruth is not a lazy person. She takes the initiative to go and help her mother-in-law out and to try to take care of her. A godly woman is like that, though, isn't she? Proverbs 31 says, in verse 13, it says, She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. A godly woman refuses to be lazy. She refuses to be idle. She refuses to be lazy, though. And she refuses to be idle, and she goes to work. And she works for her family. That's what she does. Uh, Maybe in the home, maybe somewhere, but she's not a lazy person. At the end of the day, Ruth beats out the grains uh, from the stalk with probably by means of a use of a wooden stick. And in the final analysis, it's possible that she had gathered uh, 30 pounds of barley, maybe even more. It was a, a, a good amount. Whatever it was, no one knows exactly. It was impressive, an impressive amount of work she had done for one day, unusually impressive. However, it's also true that not only did she work hard, but the, the uh, servants of Boaz had followed the instructions of Boaz to help her out. Look back in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. Remember this? It says, When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants and said, Let let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. And so because of their generosity, Ruth probably collected enough 
or that one day, maybe for even a week or maybe even a few weeks, it's not sure, but she had enough. And she even had some left over from her lunch, and she gives that to her mother-in-law as well. It says uh, in verses 14 and verse 18, she had some left over from what she'd eaten earlier, and she gives that to her mother-in-law. And so Naomi asks, where did you glean today and what, what field? And she says it was in the field of Boaz. Well, in verse 20, Naomi replies with two statements, one concerning the Lord and one concerning, concerning Boaz. Uh, notice the first statement in verse 20. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now, that's a di- different Naomi from chapter 1. The, cha- the Naomi of chapter 1 was a bitter, bitter woman, a woman who was, uh, had gone through severe trials, uh, death of family members, deeply hurt, deeply wounded. This is not the same Naomi. She's different now. She says, back in chapter 1, she says, I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Now she says, she says in verse 20, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness from the living, uh, shown to the living and the dead. Um, And there's that word, that famous Old Testament word, kesed again, uh, where, where it's translated kindness here, talking about the covenant loyal love of God to his people. Uses that word again. He's shown this covenant faithfulness to his people, Ruth, uh, uh, Naomi is saying here. To the living, that is, he's showing it to those who are still alive, Naomi and Ruth, and to the dead even. That, that would be Malin and Killian and Elimelech, the relatives of Naomi that had died in chapter 1. Now, how is the Lord showing kindness to the dead here? Well, the next line here in verse 20 probably gives the answer to that clue. It says uh, in verse 20, Again, Naomi said to her, the man, Boaz, is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Now, that's better translated this, like this. The man is near to us, literally, the man is near to us who can redeem us. He's able to redeem us. He's near to us. In other words, he's a relative, but that's what it says, and he's able to redeem us. So when you see, you know, uh, when it says in the NASB, one of our closest relatives does, does not capture the idea at all. He is, in fact, a redeemer. Is, is what the word is. He's a close relative, but more than that, he is a redeemer. Now, what does it mean to be a redeemer in that society? Well, a redeemer was one who delivered a member of one's kinship, his family, his clan, his tribe, whatever. He delivered them from any evil of any kind. Especially was he responsible for their economic well-being. If you had a poor person in the family, he was struggling and, and difficulty in some way and, and distress and couldn't get him out of himself out of the crisis, then the redeemer in the family, the relative in the family that was, that was the redeemer, would step in and help them out. The law of Moses speaks of different situations than when you have this so-called kinsman redeemer or a relative who's a redeemer. And when you have that situation, he takes upon himself certain responsibilities. For example, uh, Leviticus 25 talks a lot about the kinsman redeemer uh, type op- uh, responsibilities. For one thing, a kinsman redeemer would reclaim property once owned by a family, but the family may have been in dire financial straits and they sold their property, which was a big deal in Israel. And so the redeemer would step in and buy the property back. He would help them out financially. Another case would be if a relative was extremely poor and he sold himself as a servant to another Israelite, then the family redeemer would come in and buy back that person and put him in his rightful place. He could also act as a blood redeemer. This is in Numbers chapter 35. If a relative had been murdered, then it was up to this redeemer to come in and and literally uh, maybe even hunt down the murderer and avenge the murderer. 
So these are some of the things that a kinsman redeemer would do. Now, the custom of redemption was designed to maintain wholeness in the family, to maintain their status as a family, even after a relative had died, and maybe even to keep their inheritance intact as well. Definitely. And so, and, and by the way, Boaz had already been playing the role of a redeemer to some degree. He's been taking care of Naomi and, and Ruth anyway. So to some degree, he's been taking that role. We'll talk about more about this in chapter 3, however. Well, the chapter concludes with Naomi advising Ruth to work close by the female servants of Boaz, chapter 2 does. In verse 22, again, you can see the concern over harm being done to Ruth. It says there, uh, it's good that you go out and work with the maids of Boaz so others don't fall upon you in another field. And that concern has already been expressed twice in this chapter, in verse 9 and verse 16. Look at verse 9, chapter 2. It says, uh, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. And then to verse 16, at the end of verse 16, uh, he says to his servants, do not rebuke her. And now it says in verse 22, it's good that you're working with these maids because so you don't go to somebody else's field and they fall upon you. So, uh, you know, there were some problems. Uh, they were concerned for her safety. Maybe it was a dangerous time because this is in the book time of the judges, right? So you're in this crazy time period anyway. I don't know exactly when it took place. And there's concern for her well-being or safety while she's working in the field. So Ruth takes the good advice, <clears throat> sound advice, of, uh, and by the way, I'd say the same thing applies to our society today. You need to watch yourself out there and be careful. But she takes this good advice, and so she works by the maids, all the way through barley harvest, all the way through wheat harvest. In other words, Ruth probably worked six to seven weeks sometime between April and June. She worked during that time period in the fields. And as she promised, she continued to live with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and she took care of her. Now, Naomi had become greatly encouraged by Boaz because of all this, and now she was encouraging Ruth. You know, she needed encouragement, didn't she, in light of her circumstances, in light of the death of her husband, uh, the death of her two sons. She needed encouragement. And so Ruth does that, and Boaz does that. You know, we face trials of all kinds in this life. We may even be staring death in the face. You never know. The death of, I'm talking about the death of loved ones. I, just the other night, Wednesday night, on the way to church, Savannah and Megan found out their grandmother had passed away. And now they're all in Louisiana. They had the funeral, I'm, I'm imagining, you haven't heard from them, Saturday. But you never know, and people are, get discouraged uh, with things like this. In times like these, we need encouragement. Now, about a week ago, uh, Chuck and I talked to some people in the church here, and we told them, you know, you guys are a real encouragement to us. It's just your presence. And I've noticed these people every week, I, I talk to them, and I they're so friendly, and they're such a blessing just to go up and talk to them and say hi to them. They're a great encouragement to us. And I told them, you know, encouraging others is bigger than anybody realizes. It's a big deal for us to encourage people because people always need encouragement. I guarantee you, probably not a person in here tonight doesn't need encouragement in some way or another, in some facet of their life. So it's a big thing. Sometimes the right word will make a, just the, the difference they need in, in their life. Proverbs 25.11 says, Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Sometimes it takes just the right word to speak to a person, even just to be there with them. Sometimes it's an action that you take that helps them out. Do you know someone who's hurting tonight? Do you know someone that you could minister to in this way? Maybe the Lord can use you to be an encouragement to somebody else tonight or, or tomorrow or this week. Think about that. Maybe you can take someone out of, of despair even 
or even worse because of the circumstances they're in by encouraging them in the Lord. So Ruth has been encouraging Naomi. This is, listen to this. Ruth has been encouraging Naomi. Boaz has encouraged Ruth and, and Naomi. Now Naomi is encouraging Ruth, and ultimately she's going to be a source of encouragement to Boaz, although he doesn't know her right now. So we're to, as the New Testament says again and again in many ways, we're to encourage one another, right? Boaz was doing this. Ruth was doing this. Naomi was doing this. And so she's playing the role of encourager here, finally, after all the difficulties she's gone through. But not only that, we have not only Naomi the encourager, but Naomi the matchmaker. The matchmaker. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may go well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maid you, you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he, he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. Again, you can see the affection that Naomi has for Ruth. She calls her my daughter. She said this several times now. And she wants nothing more than the, than the well-being of Ruth. She's looking out for Ruth. She wants her, what she wants is to find a husband for Ruth. That's what she wants in particular. She wants Ruth, it says in verse 1, to enjoy security, is, is, is the word the Nazareth uses, security. That word means a resting place, a place she can call home, a place she can settle down in. And what she means by this is, is that she can find a resting place in a, in a husband. She can find a resting place in a husband who could take care of her, who could provide for her and take care of her needs. And that's what she meant in that time. She's not worrying about herself. She's concerned about the future of Ruth. And so that's what her concern is. And not only uh, uh, she, does she desire a husband for Ruth, she even suggests a particular individual. She says, what about Boaz? She throws out that name. You ever done that? Yeah, I know this church has done that, by the way. <laughs> Throw out names to potential people. What about so-and-so? I think that would be a good match for you. I've heard it with my own two ears. And so, I didn't say anybody's name, did I? I'm not talking about matchmakers here right now, but talking about Naomi the matchmaker. So she suggests this name of, of Boaz, but not only does she suggest the name of a potential husband, she says, why don't you go after him? Let's, let's get, let's, let's, we need to get you married here. Go after him. So the, the encourager, Naomi, is now becoming Naomi the matchmaker. And the matchmaker has a plan. By the way, matchmakers are not without plans. Not only do they like to make matches, but they like to, that was weird, but they like to, they have a plan that follows it up, right? That's, a, that's one for the record over there, Ben. So they have a plan. Here's the plan. It's the time of the year to winnow barley. That normally happened in late May through June, somewhere in there, after all the grain was cut and gathered, both the barley and the wheat and all of it. And the best threshing floors uh, for grain were on, on hilltops normally, on a rocky surface, because the rocky surface, when the, when the grain would fall, they could sweep it off and keep things uh, clean and dirt-free and so on. It was just practical. The reason a hilltop was good was because the wind would blow over the hilltop, and they needed the wind to blow, and there was no obstructions in the way, and so that was a good place. Probably, 
he was on a hill, his winnowing, his place where he winnowed barley was on a hilltop somewhere. When they would winnow the grain, they would scoop it up with a, a fork that had large teeth in it, and they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would catch the straw, and uh, it would catch the uh, chaff, and it would blow it away. But the heavier kernels of grain would fall on the rocky surface, and that's what he wanted. He probably did his winnowing at night. Actually, many think this is the evening time at this point because to take advantage of the night breezes, the wind would blow good then. So he's using all the practical things that they would normally, that's how they normally did it. Um, apparently, by the way, they say there's a regular onshore breeze that comes from the Mediterranean Sea about 2 in the afternoon, and it, and it goes and blows all the way uh, through the evening hours, hours until sunset. And so this would be the perfect time for Boaz to window the grain, ideal time. And guess who knew he would be there? Naomi knew. She knew he would be there. And so she makes this plan, and uh, she comes up with this, this plan. In verse 3, she says to her, here's what I want you to do, Ruth. I want you to wash yourself. I want you to anoint yourself, and I want you to put on certain clothes because uh, I want you to be dressed properly for what's about, about to happen. She says to wash yourself. I read somewhere where... They say that bathing was a luxury back in that time because of the shortage of water. And so uh, it's possible that it wasn't a daily occurrence, so to wash yourself would be a special thing, uh, at least something not normal or not typical every day. And then he, he, she says to her, I want you to anoint yourself. You know, you can tell when you say something strange, when everybody's smiling at you and you think, what did I just say? But I think I might know. Anyway, the, the word anoint means here to put on perfumed olive oil. I know that's not like your, what, what do they have out? Now I was going to say Chanel, Chanel number five. Boy, that was back in the day. That was a long time ago. Not today. Not today. <laughs> what do they have? I don't even know what they have. I have no idea. So I, there's, I remember some perfumes, uh, but it's all gone out of my head now completely. I don't do that, okay? So don't know about that. But... Back then, now you talk about Chanel number five, they went back further than that to perfumed olive oil back then, okay? It was a hot climate, right? They wanted to smell, they wanted her to smell good, and so they, she said, put that on. Now, notice the Nazby says, go ahead and put your best clothes on. You see anything wrong with that verse? Not nothing wrong with the verse, but do you see anything different about the verse? The word best is italicized, right? In the Nazby, which means the translators added the word in to clarify things. Only problem is they didn't clarify anything. It just simply means go put your mantle on, your outer garment is all it's saying. Now, outer, a mantle was nothing special. It was a large outer garment that covered your entire body with the exception of the head. It wasn't wearing some pretty dress when she went out that night. It's just this large outer garment. Both men and women wore it, by the way, but there was difference in the way it appeared. And Ruth was poor, and, so, and according to Exodus 22, and, and the poor would sleep in, the, this large outer garment, and it keep you warm. It's like a blanket, keep you warm at night. And uh, even though it was a hot climate, at nighttime it got cool. And Naomi knew that Ruth would be spending the night outdoors, and so she's got her wearing this and and putting and washing herself and anointing herself and so on. And what's she doing here? What's Naomi doing here? She's advising Ruth. She's telling Ruth, "Look, it's time for you to put away your widowhood and get on with your life and get married." I want you to go ahead and get married. That's what she's telling her. Now, it's interesting to me. When I, when I read this, I thought, I thought of a, a verse in the New Testament. I thought, isn't that what the Apostle Paul says to young widows? He says in 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married. 
what he said he would say later on. I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give no occasion for reproach. Why did he say that? Well, in that passage is because the young widows were going around idle, uh, idle, being idle and gossiping and causing issues and harming the testimony for Christ. And so, so Paul says, I want you, look, get married again and keep the house and so on and so forth is what he says there. But Ruth wasn't guilty of any of that. In this case, Naomi wanted her to find security or rest in a husband, and so she advises this. And so she comes up with this plan. And she continues on in, in, in verse 3, and she says, you know, wait until Boaz has eaten before you enact the plan. Wait until he's eaten. That's good advice, by the way. Everybody knows the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? So you, you have to do it that way. That's, trust me, that is the way to do it. And Naomi wanted Boaz to be in a receptive mood as possible. So he's going to make sure he's eaten and, and, uh, and, and taken care of that way, and he's finished with that. And by the way, the fact that he's drinking doesn't mean he got drunk. Some people think he got drunk. It's not what it's saying there. He probably drank wine, but that was just typical back then anyway. But only with the meal. It was just part of the meal, and it wasn't uh, drunkenness. Now, the reason the reasoning behind that is people say, well, Ruth was a Moabite. And you remember how the Moabite started? Lot's two daughters got him drunk, and they had children with him, and the, and the descendants were Moab and Ammon. And Ruth is from Moab. Ruth is a Moabite. So they say it must be the same here. Well, that's not the same thing at all. Ruth was a Moabite, yes, but she's also a follower of the Lord. And Ruth is a godly woman. And Boaz is a godly man. And so neither have intentions that are evil. And I say all that to say that drunkenness did not play a part in this at all. And there's no hint of it at all. Well, Boaz lays down and he goes to sleep. And Ruth, according to verse 4, was to mark the place where he lay down. Later on, she would go uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. Um, and by the way, it's obvious at, from the end of verse 4 that Boaz knew exactly what was meant by these actions. It says there, after all that, she says at the end of verse 4, then he will tell you what you shall do. He knows what's going to happen. He, he interprets the actions correctly. Um, he'll tell you what to do. There may be doubt in the minds of many people who read the Bible and study it as to what took place with Boaz in his mind. There was no doubt at all of what was going on. He interpreted the actions correctly. And we're going to find out from his own mouth what the interpretation of, the, of these events mean. Well, as I look at verse 4, I had three questions that came to my mind. First, what does it mean when it says, you shall go and uncover his feet? Now, speculation on that is run wild, okay? Some people think that Ruth was acting like a harlot. That's ridiculous. As you read the story, there's nothing to hint at that at all. That's an example of people who have no understanding of this passage whatsoever. And there's many of them out there, by the way. There are also those who think that um, Ruth... Uh, uncovered Boaz uh, from the, root, the waist down. I don't think that's the case either. You know what? I looked up every major Hebrew lexicon that defines Hebrew words, and they all say, you know what, how they translate uh, where it says uncover his feet, his feet, you know how they, they translate that? They say that feet actually means feet or the place of the feet. Every one of them do. Now, some people say that include included the legs or the lower part of the legs based on a reference from Daniel 10.6. They get that and they say, see, this is, I don't know that we can go that far. I personally think it was only the feet that were uncovered. There's no need to speculate wildly because the context, as you read the context, you don't get any impression of any, any wrongdoing, any impropriety whatsoever. Everything was above board. Another question to ask is this, why did Boaz feel the need to spend the night there? 
Why was he spending the night there? Did you ever think about that? Did he like to camp out in the open out there? I don't think that was the reason. I think probably because he was protecting his grain from maybe thieves or animals that would come in to get it. And I think it was just a protective measure. And then thirdly, why did Naomi tell Ruth to uncover his feet? What does it mean? What actually does that mean? Well, we'll we'll cover that when we get to verse 9. We'll put it on hold for right now. But first of all, let me take it aside here and explain something uh, at this point. And that is, let's talk about what's called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. That is a subject found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. For tonight, we're going to concern ourselves with just two verses. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Let me read those verses to you. It says there, Deuteronomy 25, 5, When brothers live together... One of them dies and has no son. The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So if a man dies and leaves a widow behind, they have no children, the law says the brother is supposed to take marry that woman, and the firstborn son they have, firstborn child they have, will carry on the name of the dead brother. That's the, the leveret law. And then the family of the deceased would not die out that way, but continue on. And also the inheritance would continue on uh, and, uh, from that family, and it wouldn't be lost. The only problem is in the book of Ruth, we don't have a brother involved. We have a relative of some kind, and we don't know what. We don't know what kind of relative Boaz was, and, uh, but it says brother in, in, in Deuteronomy. But I, st- I think that in this case, the letter of the law couldn't be followed with Boaz and Ruth, but the spirit of the law could be followed. The kinsman redeemer could function in the same way as a brother regardless. So Naomi, Naomi becomes a matchmaker, and she advises Ruth to take this course of action. And like I said, in verse, in verse 4, it says, Ruth says, all that you say I will do, or verse 5, rather, all that you say I will do. So that brings us to the next scene. And that is scene two, Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz found in chapter three, verses six six to 15. The first thing we see here is Ruth's proposal. Her proposal in verses six to nine says in verse six, so Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. Behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Now you find out, first of all, in this section that Ruth was not only loyal, but she's also obedient. Verse 6 says that she did all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Very obedient to her mother-in-law, almost as if, that's her mother, as, as her mother-in-law keeps calling her my daughter anyway. As for Boaz, verse 7, well, he's satisfied with his food and drink. He's happy. He's content. He's, his belly's full. He's ready to go to sleep for the night. And so he goes to sleep right beside a heap of grain. Sometime later, Ruth comes in quietly so as not to disturb him. And then carrying out the wishes of her mother-in-law, she uncovers his feet. I think literally uncovers his feet and lies down. In the middle of the night, the Nazbi says in verse 8 that Boaz was startled. 
Actually, the word is trembled. It says he was trembled. He trembled in the middle of the night. So either he trembled because something startled him, like the NASB says, maybe some noise, uh, something, an animal, noise, whatever. Maybe he had a dream. Maybe he had a dream the heap of grain was going to fall on his head and startled him. I don't know. Uh, maybe he trembled because his feet were uncovered and, and he shivered in the night cold as a result of that. It doesn't tell us why. But at any rate, he woke up and lo and behold, at his feet lie a woman. And there's no reason to think, by the way, there's no reason to think that Ruth was lying side by side with Boaz like husband and wife, as some have said. That's not, it doesn't say that at all. It says she was simply, you can't believe what people think about this passage, by the way. It simply says she was lying at his feet. Boaz had no idea who the woman was at first. And so he says, who are you? He's startled. And it's a total surprise to him. He has no idea this is going to happen at all. He's doing his job and sleeping there. But Ruth doesn't waste any time at all. If you notice in verse 8, she doesn't waste any time at all with the answer. She comes out straight forward and says, I am Ruth, your maid. Now back in chapter 2, verse 13, look at that again. She says, Ruth says, I have found, if, uh, she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. She calls herself a maidservant in that verse. Now that term meant a person on the lowest rung of the social ladder in society. That's what it meant in that, in that particular verse. However, here she says, I'm your maid, Ruth. She uses a different word. This word is a little higher. This is higher than the, the last term on the social ladder. Uh, this word is used of a wife or a prospective wife in regards to her husband. And so Ruth is presenting herself as a prospective wife by the use of this word now, not the same term before. And then right on the heels of that, she says, without hesitation, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are one who redeems, literally. You're, it's, I think it says, what does it say? You're a close relative in verse 8? Yeah, in verse 9. Spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Actually, spread your covering over your maid, for you are one who redeems. He's a redeemer, is the word, again, should be. Uh, well, what does that mean? That's puzzling, isn't it? Spread your covering over your maid. What does that mean? What is Ruth requesting of Boaz? Well, it's very simple. She's, she's making a marriage proposal to Boaz here. She's proposing marriage. Now, what kind of a marriage was this? The proposal was this. We think of marriage proposals now, we think of a guy getting on his knees, right? And, yeah, and asking uh, for the girl's hand in marriage. But that's not what happened here because this is, what happened here was based on an ancient Near East custom that was familiar to those people. The idea of a man covering, and this is crucial to this whole passage, the idea of a man covering a woman with his garment was a symbolic act which, according to Near Eastern custom, meant the establishment of a new relationship and the symbolic declaration of the husband to provide for his future wife. This is what Naomi had in mind when she uh, concocted this whole scheme. This is what she wanted. Ruth uncovered the feet of Boaz because she would then ask him to cover her with it. It was a symbolic way of, of, of requesting Boaz's protection as her husband. This is a marriage proposal is what it is. Ruth is proposing marriage based on the orders, basically, the commands given from Naomi to do this. And that's what's happening here. And it's very clear from the following verses that Boaz understands it exactly this way. Look at verse 10. Then Boaz said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men. 
whether poor or rich. So Boaz understands this as a marriage proposal. He asks the question, why didn't Boaz propose to Ruth? That's a good question. I think probably there were two reasons why. One is because Boaz knew there was a redeemer closer than he was that had the first shot at this, that had the first claim upon Ruth. That could be one reason. And I think the second reason was is because Boaz is about a generation older than Ruth. And he maybe felt awkward. Maybe he didn't feel he should promote marriage to her being older than she was. At any rate, he didn't do it. But for that matter, Ruth didn't initiate the proposal either. This marriage proposal was concocted and driven by Naomi. She's the one that said, go do this. And so Ruth does exactly what she says, being the obedient, loyal daughter-in-law to Naomi. Now, Naomi may have figured that Boaz, if he hadn't proposed by now to Ruth, would would never do it. And maybe she knew the reasons, too. It doesn't say. So she puts this plan in action. This is the most, probably, I, I guess, the most unique marriage proposal in the whole Bible. Very unique. Think about how ironic this all is. First of all, a servant is asking that the, her boss may marry her. Because he was her boss in the field. Secondly, a Moabite is proposing to an Israelite. Thirdly, a woman is proposing to a man in this society back then. And fourthly, a poor person is asking a rich person to marry her. This is quite a unique marriage proposal in that time. Now, as with all marriage proposal, every, everyone holds their breath to see what... Is he going to say yes? In this case, is he going to say yes? What's he going to say? What's the answer going to be? Tell us what the answer is. Well, his answer is found in verses 10 to 15. Let's read that. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Fine. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another and said, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So Boaz has to come up with an answer. What's his answer? His answer is, I definitely want to marry you, but there are complications. There's a problem involved. And I'll tell you, the first problem was what he was calling her. He kept saying, my daughter. That's a problem. He says it twice, but the, the language shows that nothing improper happened between them. But if he was going to get married to her, by the way, he might want to change that and not call her my daughter anymore and she'd come up with a different name. But at any rate, Boaz is thrilled with the whole proposal, with this whole idea. He says in verse 10, 10 that he considers this last kindness, or the, first, the last kindness, the marriage proposal, better than the first kindness. Probably the first kindness was Ruth's uh, kindness to Naomi. And by the way, he thinks that Naomi, that, that, that Ruth could have probably had any husband she wanted. In verse 10, you could have gone after young men, whether rich or poor, but you didn't do that. He probably feels like she could have married anybody. She chose not to, regardless of economic status. In verse 11, Boaz is more than happy to comply with Ruth. He says, the whole town knows you're a woman of excellence. Everybody knows it. They know you're a woman of virtue. By the way, this term woman of excellence is used only twice in the Bible, and both of them are in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4 is the first one. Let me read that to you. It says there, 
in Proverbs 12:4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Same word. The next time it's used is Proverbs 31:10, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. And so Ruth is the very definition of a Proverbs 31 woman, right? I mean, think about Ruth. She's loyal. Think about Proverbs 31, what it says about the virtuous wife. She's loyal. She's unselfish. She is helpful. She is wise. She uh, takes care of her family. And it goes on and on like that. And this is how Ruth is. It's no wonder that Boaz is thrilled by this situation that he would have this proposal made to him. Now, I know the women here tonight know that Proverbs 31 is the standard for godly women. I know that. And I know also that you try to follow that standard. But in verse 12, Boaz says there's only one who is a closer relative in the position of redeeming than he is. And if in the morning that guy decides to redeem you, then fine, I'll live with it. But if not, if he doesn't, I will redeem you. He's willing to abide by the law even if he loses out. And I know this must have been frustrating uh, for both of them. He definitely wants a redeemer. He makes that clear. They probably didn't sleep much that night. You know, by the way, Ruth couldn't just leave and, and go off in the dead of night to her home. It, wasn't, it didn't work that way. It had been very unsafe, for one thing. So she stays there at night. They get up before daylight while it's still dark. And Boaz, he shows his true character because he says in verse 14, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Don't tell anybody about that. Now somebody says, well, why, if they didn't do anything wrong, then why do they say this? Well, it, this is honest, honestly, this chapter is just nothing but common sense. Everybody makes a big deal out of nothing. Look, they had a reputation to uphold, right? For themselves and for the Lord. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. It's all about the perception of other people. Can you imagine if the town had found out that Ruth had been there all night? Can you imagine how they would have reacted? They considered her to be a woman of, of, of worth, right? They considered Boaz to be a man of great influence, Men that, uh, both of them knew the Lord, followers of the Lord. So they had to protect their reputation for the Lord's sake and for their own. So he says this. Matthew Henry has an interesting comment on this verse. He says this. We must always take care not only to keep a good conscience, but to keep a good name. Either we must not do that which, though innocent, is liable to be misinterpreted, or if we do, we must not let it be known. He says, we must not avoid only sin, but scandal also. And so, it was very wise of Boaz to say what he did. Now, was Naomi's plan the best? I, I don't know. I mean, there was, I don't think it was the wisest scheme ever came, come up with proposed, but, you know. And by the way, we've got to think through our, the implications of our actions when we make plans, when we get ready to do something, when we propose to do something not marriage only, but everything, we have to think through the implications of what we're going to do and ask ourselves this question, is this going to bring discredit to the name of the Lord? Our actions that, that we're going to pursue, is it going to discredit the name of God? Is it going to hurt our reputation because we're representing him? So we're kind of in this thing, we're in this thing together, not kind of, we're definitely in this together. We don't want to hurt our testimony for Christ because we don't want to hurt Christ, right? So in spite of, but in spite of the flawed plan, however it may have been flawed, the Lord worked everything out anyway. And, of course, being the kind man that Boaz was, he could not leave Ruth until he showed her further kindness. So he loads her up with grain. He tells her to hold out her, her uh, garment like a sack, and he loads it up 
with six measures of barley into it. Now, we don't know how many six measures is. It doesn't say what kind of measure it is. We don't know how, how much it was. But I'm sure, knowing Boaz, it was much as she could fit in there. And so, as always, he shows his kindness. That brings us to scene three, Naomi and Ruth. And that's found in verses 16 to 18. Naomi and Ruth. Verse 16 says, When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, and for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Naomi, no doubt, was full of curiosity to how things had worked out, how her plan had worked out. And so she asked Ruth to tell her, and Ruth explains that, explains it to her and tells her what happened. And she says also, look, he didn't want me to go home, home empty-handed. He wants me to bring you something. Now look at, look at chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I've referred to this a couple times already. I'll read it again. Chapter 1, verse 20. This is at the beginning of the story. Naomi says, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitter, very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And Naomi, in chapter 3, Boaz says, I don't want you to go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Make sure you have something for her. And so one of, the, one of the ideas in this book is Naomi was empty, but now she's being filled up again. She's experiencing fullness again. By her own testimony, she says, I was empty, but now she's being filled up again because Boaz has become a blessing to her. Ruth has become a blessing to her. The Lord is using Boaz to take care of Naomi and Ruth. And then in verse 18, Naomi says to Ruth, be patient. Let's see how things are going to work out. Boaz will not rest until he's taken care of business. She says, trust me on that one. Well, we come to the end of chapter 3. What are we to make of Ruth chapter 3? Is it just a great love story? No doubt it is a great love story, and everybody recognizes that fact. It's even a classic. Do you know it's a classic in world literature? One of the classic short stories of all time? Everybody recognizes it as such. Chapter 3 has been looked at by opposite angles from different people. You get different takes on chapter 3. All kinds, Everything from the bizarre to the very conservative to everything in between. It's very strange. I never have actually heard a sermon or read one on Ruth chapter 3, but I did come across a guy who says that he has 13 reasons why Naomi's strategy was patently wrong. And he condemns her basically wholly. He says, I know you probably think I'm harsh with her, but I thought, yeah, you're a little bit harsh. I don't see it that way. He says she was nothing more than a meddler and should have stayed out of the whole thing. That was his take. I think that's stretching it. On the opposite side, someone called uh, Naomi's plan a, a righteous strategy. This is a righteous strategy. Well, I don't know what I would call it. Um, but I don't get the impression that the book of Ruth, or chapter 3, is some evil plan hatched by the evil Naomi trying to accomplish her evil ends. I don't get that impression at all. I think Naomi had the, the best interest of Ruth at heart and simply trying to help her find a husband. I think it's all it is. Was it the epitome of wisdom that she, her plan? I don't think so. I mean, there were some flaws in the plan, but the bottom line is this. The Lord ultimately used the plan to bring about his purposes, right? He ultimately used this plan to bring about his purposes, and he does. He off, God often takes our imperfections, and he, and he makes something of them. We blow it all the time. We're always making stupid decisions. We do dumb things. When, we, when the church was started, I'm not going to say when we started the church. It's ridiculous. When the church was started, we said, how do we start a church? And we said, we don't know. Somebody can say, that's a foolish thing to do. In fact, someone told us 
uh, I told somebody asked me how far this church was away from the other one, and I told them, and they said, That's, that doesn't make any sense. That was his, his, his uh, answer to that question. And there's things that we do that don't make sense and things that we do that are dumb, and sometimes we make wrong decisions. But I'm glad the Lord doesn't get stopped in his tracks because of what we're doing, right? He doesn't think that. He doesn't think, oh, no, what did they do? I can't do anything now. Look what they blew the whole thing. He doesn't think that. He's not even surprised by what we do. No, but he's not surprised by what you or, you or I do. Now, whatever we do, having said that, whatever we do, we should always try to be guided by the principles of the Word of God, right? And think about how things are going to affect other people. And that's how we want to do it. We can always learn from all the examples in the Bible presented, whether good or bad. But instead of overanalyzing this story of Boaz and Ruth and wondering about every little detail and how this happened and why this happened, I think the best thing to do is to see how the Lord worked all things out according to his purpose. I think it's the bottom line. Just to see how, as we read through this book, to see how the Lord worked all things out according to his purpose. I think, in the final analysis, that's the right way to view this chapter. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight, for uh, the, the story that we're given. We pray that we would see, understand that you work in our lives in ways we don't always understand. We, you work in our lives in spite of us. You work in spite of what we do. We pray you'd give us wisdom to lead a life and to make plans and do things that would honor you. We, we, we pray that we would uh, uphold the testimony of Christ uh, every day under all costs. And we just pray that uh, we would glorify you in all that we do. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.